Chapter Twelve B of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter Twelve, Army and Navy, Part B. The way they have in the army. If there is any one man who has permanently influenced football at West Point, that man is H. J. Kohler, for years master of the sword at the academy. Under his active coaching, some of the Army's finest players were developed. In recent years, he has not been a member of the coaching staff, but he nonetheless never loses touch with the team, and his advice concerning men and methods is always eagerly sought. By virtue of long experience at the academy, and because of an aptitude for analysis of the game itself, he has been invaluable in harmonizing practice and play with peculiar local conditions. Any time the stranger seeks to delve either into the history or the constructive coaching of the game at the academy, the younger men, as well as the older, will always answer your questions by saying, Go ask Kohler. Always a hard worker and serious thinker, he is apt to give an almost nightly demonstration during the season of the foundation principles of the game. Not only West Pointers, but also Yale and Princeton men, who had to face the elevens under Kohler's coaching, will remember Roman, who, had he been kicking in the days of Felton, Mahan, and the other long-distance artillerists, might well have held his own, in the opinion of army men. Nesbitt, Waldron, and Scales were among the other really brilliant players whom Kohler developed. He was in charge of some of the teams that played the hardest schedules in the history of West Point football. One year the cadets met Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Syracuse, and Penn State. Surely this was a season's work calculated to develop remarkable men, or break them in the making. Bettison, center, King Boyers at guard, and Bunker at tackle and half, were among the splendid players who survived this trial by fire. Cassad, Clark, and Phillips made up a backfield that would have been a credit to any of the colleges. Soon, however, the Army's strength was greatly to be augmented by the acquisition of Charles Dudley Daly, fresh from four years of football at Harvard. Reputations made elsewhere do not count for much at West Point. The coaches were glad to have Plebe Daly come out for the squad. But they knew, and he knew quite as well as they, that there are no shortcuts to the big A. Now began a remarkable demonstration of football genius. Not only did the former Harvard captain make the team, but his aid in coaching was also eagerly sought. An unusual move this, but a tribute to the new man. Daly was modesty itself in those days, as he has been ever since, even when equipped with the yellow jacket and peacock feather of the head coach. As player and as coach, and often as the two combined, Daly's connection with West Point football covered eight years, in the course of which he never played on or coached a losing team. His record against the Navy alone is seven victories and one tie, 146 points to 33. His final year's coaching was done in 1915. From West Point he was sent to Hawaii, whence he writes me as follows. There are certain episodes in the game that have always been of particular interest to me, such as Eli's game-playing with broken ribs in the Harvard-Yale game of 1898, 
Charlie de Saul's great playing with a sprained ankle in the Yale-Princeton game of the same year, the tackling of Bunker by Long of the Navy in the Army-Navy game of 1902, the hardest tackle I have ever seen, and the daring quarterback work of Johnny Cutler in the Harvard-Dartmouth 1908 game, when he snatched victory from defeat in the last few minutes of play. Undoubtedly, Daly's deep study of strategy and tactics as used in warfare had a great deal to do with his continued ascendancy as a coach. Writing to Herbert Reed, one of the pencil-and-paper football men, with whom he had many a long argument over the generalship of the game, he said in part, Football within the limitations of the rules and sportsmanship is a war game. Either by force or by deception it advances through the opposition to the goal line, which might be considered the capital of the enemy. It was in Daly's first year that a huge southerner with a pleasant drawl turned up in the plebe class. It was a foregone conclusion almost on sight that Ernest, better known to football men throughout the country as Pot Graves, would make the eleven. He not only played the game almost flawlessly from the start, but he made so thorough a study of line play in general that his system, even down to the most intimate details of face-to-face -face coaching, filed away for all time in that secret library of football methods at West Point, has come to be known as Graves' Bible. Daly, still with that inextricable love for his own alma mater, lent a page or two from this tome to Harvard, and even the author appeared in person on Soldier's Field. The manner in which Graves made personal demonstration of his teachings will not soon be forgotten by the Harvard men who had to face Pot Graves. Graves has always believed in the force mentioned in Daly's few lines quoted above on the subject of military methods as applied to football. While always declaring that the gridiron was no place for a fistfight, he always maintained that stalwarts should be allowed to fight it out with as little interference by rule as possible. As a matter of fact, Graves was badly injured in a game with Yale, and for a long time afterwards hobbled around with a troublesome knee. He knew the man who did it, but would never tell his name, and he contents himself with saying, I have no ill will. He got me first. If he hadn't, I would have got him. A story is told of Graves' impatience with the members of a little luncheon party, who in the course of an argument on the new football, were getting away from the fundamentals. Rising and stepping over the window of the officers' club, he said with a sleepy smile, Come here a minute, you fellows and pointing down to the roadway added, There's my team. Looking out of the window, the other members of the party saw a huge steamroller snorting and puffing up the hill. Among the men who played football with Graves and were indeed of his type were Doe and Bunker. Like Graves, Bunker, in spite of his great weight, was fast enough to play in the backfield in those years when the Army Elevens were relying so much upon terrific power. Those were the days when substitutes had very little opportunity. In the final Navy game of 1902, the same eleven men played for the Army from start to finish. In this period of Army football, other first-class men were developed, notably Torney, a remarkable back, Thompson, a guard, and Tom Hammond, who was later to make a reputation as an end coach. Bunker was still with this aggregation, an eleven that marched fifty yards for a touchdown in fifteen plays against the midshipmen. The Army was among the early Eastern teams to test Eastern football methods against those of the West, the cadets defeating a team from the University of Chicago on the Plains. 
the west pointers had only one criticism to make of their visitors and it was laconically put by one of the backs who said they're all fired fast but it's funny how they stop when you tackle them in this lineup was a c tipton at center to whom belongs the honor of forcing the rules committee to change the code in one particular in order to stop a maneuver which he invented while in mid-career in a big game no one will ever forget how when chasing a loose ball and realizing that he had no chance to pick it up he kicked it again and again until it crossed the final chalk mark where he fell on it for a touchdown tipton was something of a wrestler too as a certain japanese expert in the art of jiu-jitsu can testify and indeed did testify on the spot after the doctors had brought him to there was no lowering of the standards in the succeeding years which saw the development of players like hackett prince farnsworth and davis those years too saw the rise of such wonderful forwards as w w red irwin and that huge man from alaska d d pullen coming now to more recent times the coaching was turned over to h m nelly assisted by joseph w beecham fresh from chasing the little brown brother in the philippines beecham had made a great reputation at cornell and there was evidence that he had kept up with the game at least in the matter of strategic possibilities even while in the tangled jungle of luzon he brought with him even more than that an uncanny ability to see through the machinery of the team and pick out its human qualities upon which he never neglected to play there have been few coaches closer to his men than joe whenever i talk football with joe beecham he never forgets to mention von cooper to whom he gives a large share of the credit for the good work of his elevens cooper was of the quiet type whose specialty was defense these two made a great team it was in this period that west point saw the development of one of its greatest field generals there was nothing impressive in the physical appearance of little h l hyatt a reasonably good man ball in hand his greatest value lay in his head work as the west point trainer said one day i've got him all bandaged up like a leg in a puttee but from the neck up he's a piece of ice the charts of games in which hyatt ran the team are set before the squad each year as examples not merely of perfect generalship but of the proper time to violate that generalship and make it go a distinction shared by pritchard who followed in his footsteps with added touches of his own one cannot mention pritchard's name without thinking at once of merlat who with pritchard formed one of the finest forward passing combinations the game has seen both at franklin field and at the polo grounds this pair brought woe to the navy these stars had able assistance in the persons of McEwen, one of the greatest centers the game has seen and who was chosen to lead the team in nineteen sixteen weyand nyland and o'hare among the forwards and the brilliant and sturdy oliphant in the backfield the man whose slashing play against the navy in nineteen fifteen will never be forgotten oliphant was of a most unusual type even when he was doing the heaviest damage to the navy corps the midshipman could not but admire his wonderful work what the hustlers are to annapolis the cullum hall team is to west point it is made up of the leftovers from the first squad and substitutes one would travel far afield in search of a team with more spirit and greater pep in action whether playing in outside games or as their coach would put it showing up the first eleven not infrequently a player of the highest caliber is developed in this squad and taken to the first eleven 
the cullum hall squad whose eleven generally manages to clean up some of the strongest school teams of the hudson valley draws not a little of its spirit i think from the late lieutenant e m zell better known at the academy as joby it was a treat to see the cullum hall team marching down the field against the first eleven with the roly-poly figure of joby in the thick of every scrimmage coaching at the top of his lungs even when bowled over by the interference of his own pupils since his time the squad has been turned over to lieutenants selleck and crawford who have kept alive the traditions and the playing spirit of this unique organization their reward for the bruising hard work with hardly a shadow of the hope of getting their letter comes in seeing the great game itself like the college scrub teams the hardest rooters for the varsity are to be found in their ranks now for the game itself always hard fought always well fought there is perhaps no clash of all the years that so wakes the interest of the general public that vast throng which without college affiliations is nevertheless hungry for the right of allegiance somewhere somehow while the service elevens are superbly supported by the men who have been through the exacting mill at west point and annapolis their sweethearts and wives not to mention sisters cousins uncles and aunts they are urged on to battle by that great impartial public which believes that in a sense these two teams belong to it it is not uncommon to find men who have had no connection with either academy in hot argument as to the relative merits of the teams once in the stands some apparently trifling thing begets a partnership that this class of spectator is wont to wonder at after it is all over whether in philadelphia in the earlier history of these contests on neutral ground or in new york army and navy day has become by tacit consent the nearest thing to a real gridiron holiday for the civilian who has been starved for thrilling action and the chance to cheer through the autumn days the jam at the hotels used as headquarters by the followers of the two elevens satisfies a yearning that he has hitherto been unable to define there too is found a host of old-time college football men and coaches who hold reunion and sometimes even bury hatchets making his way through the crowds and jogging elbows with the heroes of a sport that he understands only as organized combat he becomes obsessed with the spirit of the two fighting institutions once in possession of the coveted ticket he hies himself to the field as early as possible if he is wise in order to enjoy the preliminaries which are unlike those at any other game soon his heart beats faster attuned to the sound of tramping feet without the gates the measured cadence swells draws nearer and the thousands rise as one when first the long gray column and then the solid ranks of blue swing out upon the field the precision of the thing the realization that order and system can go so far as to hold in check to the last moment the enthusiasms of these youngsters thrills him to the core then suddenly gray ranks and blue alike break for the stands there to cut loose such a volume of now orderly now merely frenzied noise as never before smote his ears it is inspiration and it is novelty the time the place and the men that wake the loyalty dormant in every man which sad to say so seldom has a chance of expression around the field are ranged diplomat dignitary of whatsoever rank both native and foreign in common with those who came to see as well as to be seen and who does not boast of having been to the army navy game they rise uncovered as the only official non-partisan of football history enters the gates 
the President of the United States. Throughout one half of the game he lends his support to one academy, and in the intermission makes triumphal progress across the field, welcomed on his arrival by a din of shouting surpassing all previous effort there to support their side. It is perhaps one of those blessed hours in the life of a man upon whom the white light so piteously beats, when he can indulge in the popular sport, to him so long denied, of being merely human. Men, methods, moods pass on. The years roll by, taking toll of every one of us from highest to lowest. Yet, whether we are absorbed in the game of games, or whether we look upon it as so many needs must, merely as a spectacle, the Army-Navy game will remain a milestone never to be uprooted. I have spoken elsewhere and at length of football traditions. The Army-Navy game is not merely a football tradition, but an American institution. It is for all the people every time. May this great game go on forever, serene in its power to bring out the best that is in us, and when the great bugler sounds the silver-sweet call of taps for all too many, there will still be those who in their turn will answer the call of reveille to carry on the traditions of the great day that was ours. End of chapter 12, part B. Recording by Patty Cunningham.